Welcome to the Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Welcome to the podcast, part of the Concealed Carry Podcast Network. The Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners. We tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and cops. Today, I'm joined by a DB. Daryl Bolke is back. We're going to talk about pinning the trigger and why you should or shouldn't. But first, today's sponsor is brought to you by Manisax the new X10 Elite dry practice system uh, attaches to any pistol, rifle, shotgun, or bow with a rail or adapter. And you can actually use it during uh, live fire and dry practice. Also Airsoft. Other sponsor today is Barrel Block. Check out the sponsors in the show notes. Barrel Block safe realistic training that prevents chambering and it is a visual safety indicator uh, that there is no cartridge in the chamber of your firearm when you're conducting dry practice oh check them out at blocksafety.com and always edc belt company the foundation belt honorary sponsor and uh, we may have a special edition coming out really shortly so stay tuned let's bring in our guest Naughty Santa's back with his pillage and plunder bag kit. All right. Welcome back. My naughty sack. I, the naughty sack and the DB's He's pillage. He's around the Krampus with his sack. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to throw a shout out to Sam. She caught my order and like immediately like reached out to me like, oh my God, you should have called me before you ordered and I would have gotten your, and I'm like, Hey, I'm just a customer, man. Like I pre- love you, love your product. I ordered uh, the old Giles stock bag and and uh, the little mini duffel, <clears throat> which oddly enough fits my camera tripod and my lights and my portable lavalier mics for shot show just perfectly. So it's okay. I was running out to the mailbox right now to see if mine was here. So yeah, I get it. <laughs> but uh, and I. I did order them in multicam black because uh, Daryl Bulky might be one of my heroes, and I can't let him be the only guy with multicam black duffel bags. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you know, scorched earth camo. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, on your return, we've we've had uh, kind of a resurgence of like these two schools of thought on, uh, I call them the, the reset and recoil crowd and the pin and reset crowd for working a trigger and somewhere in the middle is the good answer. Right. Um, and, and we talked about it, uh, a couple of times this week over the last few days. And <clears throat> I think they're both right. And I think they're both completely wrong. <laughs> you know, this, this shows the nerdity of our lives that this is what we're talking about on the phone, but yeah, the, this what? is another one of those subjects that, Sadly, social media has turned into a, you know, you get people blather over and over and over. Hey, you, uh, you, you know, don't be, you know, I, I'm riding the reset and recoil and all this other. No, you're not. And we'll talk about it. But you're not doing what you say you're doing. Right. What you think you're doing. Or, right. Because for the for those who do the pin and reset, it becomes a. uh you know, you, you're a moron and that's not necessarily true either. So 
to kind of give some background on this, I've been there from the beginning of this thing. Now, a lot of this comes out of high-level rifle shooting. Uh-huh. Your camp carry. This is no different than what a lot of that's been done on a rifle. I'm not saying I'm in, I was there from the beginning of that, but where it became a big thing was personally is we're going to go back in the time machine. So 1989, I'm, we're, you know, my, my SWAT guys are carrying SIG P220s. That's how I went to my department. I sold them the P220s because I worked for SIG's LE distributor at the time. Uh, but while I was in college, and I, I always say I went to my agency with a SIG order. So the the reality of that was um, in 1989, I took over training or as assigned to our SWAT team as one of the firearms instructors. And shortly thereafter, took over as the only firearms instructor and armor for SWAT. And I, I went out to LAPD SWAT to get trained in, uh, with Larry Mudgett and kind of the crew out there. And I did well, you know, I got the job at my department because I was the best shooter in the department, which did not qualify a 24-year-old to be the SWAT dude. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. So I get out to deep platoon. And I had no issues with the shotgun. That's why I always say Scotty liked me because I could run a gauge. <laughs> and I had no issues with the MP5 because how hard is it to shoot MP5s, especially as an, as an instructor? You know, I, I could run an MP5. Where I really had struggled was on their pistol course. I couldn't qualify on their SWAT qual. I mean, I was close, but I wasn't really there. And where I really, really struggled with the SIG 220 was particularly at 15 and 25 yards and the standards they were shooting with their 1911 two rounds four seconds from a ready or some stuff on the draw uh, on uh, the b course man with that c220 it was tough when you're shooting pairs at 25 yards of managing that double to single transition yeah because we kind of really didn't know what they were doing. I mean, we are really in the golden age right now of the DASA autos where we really know how to shoot them now. And thank guys like Langdon and some of these guys have really pushed that way. We really know how to run those guns. You know, in 1989, they were kind of new. And in the mid mid to late 1980s, we really didn't know how to run those guns. Well, and it wasn't even that they were new. It's just that they were the ones that were available that whole Glock thing hadn't taken off, and oh no, I had a, uh, I, I had a early uh, Gen One Glock. I could not shoot worth a heck. I liked carrying it. I couldn't shoot it because we didn't know how to shoot those either. Of the, the the prominence of the era, because I was setting, you know, at the the right hand of the father in the gun shop was yeah. the two two six Sig. If you couldn't carry a forty five, the two two six Sig was that was the Cadillac. Followed by the Beretta 92, 92. Uh, because they were within 40, 50 bucks of each other. The SIG was a little more expensive in that era. I remember this in 87, a Beretta 92 was $489 and a SIG 226 was 529. And that was a bridge too far for some dudes. Uh, and then you had the third gen Smiths, uh, yeah. 5906s, all that, that good stuff. Still had some holdovers shooting single stack 39s uh, because, hey, we can carry an auto now. 
Ruger released the P85, and that was the budget entry level gun at somewhere around 350 bucks to yeah. get into an LE semi auto in nine millimeter. And that was kind of it. And then, you know, yeah. you, you started we seeing were, Glocks we filter in, but. Yeah. And we were a big 45 agency. So we were a mm-hmm. 220 agency. Um, I shot a 226 competitively off duty, all that. But our duty guns were 220s. And, you know, we really didn't, we were shooting all of these things kind of like revolvers. Yes. Uh, the grips were revolver grips. You know, we're going through this thing now of guys shooting revolvers with an auto grip. Well, that's reverse of what the problem <laughs> was back then. So we're shooting all the autos with a revolver grip. So, yeah, there was a lot of things going on. But after I came back from LAPD SWAT, I had a really hard time with our guys, particularly at 25 yards, shooting the DASA guns, because we'd end up with two groups mm-hmm. on that pair at 25. You'd end up with one that was kind of low left, one that was high right. Yep. And that was, it was just an issue. It really was, because they had never been forced to shoot like that at 25 yards. My, I mean, our, our qual was uh, six rounds and five minutes at 25 yards. With a DA revolver. Wow. So, I mean, it was now, now I'm going, I need two rounds and four seconds at 25 yards from a ready. And it's a, it's a little bit of a different thing. And, I'll, and it was always a real struggle. And I'll never forget. I went to, I believe it was in 1990. I went to the mandated uh, big, long post firearms instructor school. You got to go to you uh-huh. know, the state school. And the highlight of that thing, you know, I could have basically uh, almost taught the thing. You know, I mean, you, you've been to the, the state-mandated schools, I'm sure, where you're oh, yeah. like, for a guy who's really into this, that's kind of a check-the-box. But it was a very good program where it was held at. One of the things they did is they came in and they said, hey, for you guys all shooting these new DASA guns and stuff, we got a video that we've really diagnosed and want to look at. So they showed us high speed video and that was the new thing in that era. I mean, where they can slow video down to really this kind of frame by frame, super high quality, high resolution, you know, on, on VHS tape. Um, but it was Tommy Campbell shooting. And if you remember in that era, Tommy Campbell worked for Smith and Wesson. And his Ipsic gun, he's like kind of the first guy shooting a DASA gun. And you watch him in shooting, and his finger never left the trigger. So he'd come back in double action, uh, stroke the shot, pin the trigger, slide goes forward. One of the big benefits of the Smith & Wesson was it had a super short reset, control the reset, and pop the next shot and continue well, this is the first time any of us had ever seen anything like this or had it had an instructional level who could explain what was going on. And Smith started using that short reset as a selling point yep. with the competitive guys at the time. I looked at that video and I'm like, oh, my God, here is the solution to all of our problems of managing the DASA gun brought that back. And all of a sudden we can 
pair those pairs where you can't tell the difference between the double and the single. Fast forward a little bit, you go to I go to Glock school because we started to allow Glocks years later. But I, you, well before that, I went to the Glock school to uh, to get qualified as an armor. And you know, yeah, they had a great armor transition school. Yeah, it's a couple days and you got everything you really needed mm-hmm. and back then in particular they had great instructors um and that was a big push from glock was the pen and reset boy was that a and you know back then we considered glock triggers to be horrible because if you think about it they weren't like a 1911 by any stretch of the imagination no. and they certainly weren't like a sig or a beretta either way i mean well- and if we back that up just a touch more, I read, I can remember, it's probably 89 or 90. I read the FBI published a manual for that they disseminated through all the law enforcement channels to, and I'd love to get a copy of it because it, it frames so much in context uh, where they're addressing instructors talking about the transition from DA to SA. And one of the things that they recommended was guys hold the trigger to the rear and only let it forward enough to tactically or, or, uh, auditorily hear the click to ingrain the habit of, you don't have to reset this trigger the way that you did your revolvers so that it, because guys were so ingrained of get all the way out, touch the front of the trigger guard with a revolver. Come back and so smack that, you, that signal action. <laughs> yeah, so that you don't uh, you don't short stroke the revolver because you and I both know if you don't let the revolver trigger out, there's a little point in there where you can spin the cylinder and the hammer don't come back. And it goes, shlink. And one, you skipped a live round that you've got to now press twice to get back to when it comes around. But the other part is, you can sit there and click that revolver with the cylinder and roll around on live rounds with no hammer smacking any of them. I'll, I'll tell you, we had that in a live shooting. Um, that, oh, wow. that ended up becoming an issue. Yeah. And so, and, and you know, going back to the FBI, I'm sure they had access to Campbell. And, you know, remember, this is the era of the 1006. Mm-hmm. Again, this was a way to shoot those guns. Because what was happening, particularly if you think about the SIGs, the Berettas, and the Smiths, all of them had good single actions. Yeah. Their doubles kind of different, you know, some were harder, lighter, or whatever. But the reality was once you got through that double action, if you came back and wailed on that single action from the front of the trigger guard, and didn't really control that press on the single action, man, that round was, again, you've tried to kind of muscle your way through this DA pull. A lot of people are putting uh, hand inflection in at the end, which you're a big diagnoser of, that, you know, right before the bang, they're squeezing it. Uh On the DA, it goes off. They come to the front of the trigger guard and come back and wail on that yeah. trigger with momentum or they're and reaching again, for it. Got, yeah. You've got a lot of issues of trying to get guys to be able to shoot controlled surgical groups. And that was where the instruction side of it, if you couldn't, if 
you didn't know how to diagnose and fix that, uh, that's where the spreading the trauma started coming from. Of uh, well, we teach these guys out here to spread the trauma around. Like basically, we can't. We're such crappy instructors. We can't teach them to surgically shoot. So we'll just rename this thing that will fit fit in our instructional failures. You know, typical of the law enforcement kind of training world. This is the stuff that happens. So because I was doing our guys on the LAPD courses, there was no spreading the trauma. You had to be able to surgically shoot, deliver and center hit, solid center hits on pairs and solid headshots. So there was no, none of that applied. So we started using that technique and were able to really dominate these pistols with the SIG 220s. And then we were, we were probably the first agency in the country with our SWAT team to go to the USP 45 full size when it came out. Yeah. You're managing a lot of gun with a lot of double action on that bad boy. I mean, the fantastic guns, but boy, you had to be good on those triggers. Um, so that's sort of where it came from. And, you know, we had some, uh, we had some issues in one case, a lot of my SWAT guys, the older ones in particular would carry a P220 SWAT and still carry their 45 Colt revolver and patrol. Yeah. And I will never forget. I was filling in in their support. It was before I was actually assigned as a flight officer. I would, fill in when they had when they needed people i kind of learned how to do all the helicopter stuff because i wanted to do it so that's what you gotta do and i'm overhead on an officer involved shooting and one of our swat guys who was a prolific getting into shooting guy didn't often hit stuff but boy he was in a lot of them i'm overhead calling the shooting and i'm watching him shoot and i'm like god that's the most controlled i've ever seen this guy shoot it was like boom and you see the big you know you see that 45 colt go off and you have this big puff of smoke and then boom big puff of smoke and then i'm like finally we're getting this guy to shoot real controlled instead of just emptying the gun like usual you know i go down because then i i had to do the cleanup on the officer ball shooting i go down to do the firearms ballistic end of it after we land he's got three hit cartridges and three not hit cartridges. Probably and every other shooting, cylinder. <laughs> every other thing. So he would he would fire around, reset the trigger, and then he'd spin it. It didn't go bang. So then he'd go, oh, no, I need to go all the way forward. So he did that three times. Because most of the instruction that was actually getting anchored and shooting a lot was with the SIG during SWAT. <sighs> So he's doing the pin and reset thing with his revolver. And it, it, it kind of forced a lot of guys to just transition to carry their SIGs all the time because they saw the kind of the problem of trying to do both if you weren't really a shooter. Um, you know, so, you know, it, 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 it kind of propelled allowing the SWAT guys to carry a 40 uh, auto all the time rather than an auto on SWAT and then the revolvers and patrol. So, you know, it, it made some changes, but again, you know, you, you, these were all kind of feeling our way through this stuff. And then like I said, the Glocks came out and everybody had a hard time shooting Glocks. Yeah. Because they were just different. Again, they weren't like a 1911. They weren't like a revolver and they weren't like a DASA gun that had a little bit of both in them. 
They were really its own thing. And it was a way to manage that trigger. So fast forward a few years, I go take a Larry Vickers class. It's one of the very first classes Larry did when he got out of the military was invite only. Um, The worst guy in class was a SEAL instructor. I mean, everybody in there was top shelf. And man, you got the best of Larry because you literally got Larry with a set of students who really wanted to be there. It's before Larry was kind of famous. So you didn't have guys showing up trying to get a Larry Vickers autograph. They really truly wanted the best out of Larry and he delivered in spades. I've never been so taxed. I could literally barely drive home uh, after day two of the class. We shot like 400 rounds or something. And I literally could almost not drive home because my, I was so physically taxed from the class because in that one, everything outside the 10 was a miss. So even the nine ring and the black was still a mess. I mean, the yeah. standards were high. Uh, you know, we did the 500 point aggregate. I mean, we, we, the humbler, I mean, it was just brutal. The whole thing was just brutal. And, and Larry with the bolt, you know, it's kind of everybody's really kind of their first exposure to a B8 held to the 10 and Larry's evil timer. It was just, so one of the guys in class with me was Dean Caputo, who is a as good of an instructor as there is, good of a firearms guy and well-proven in street shootings, the whole thing. Dean's a Dean's a uh, one of our, our our tribe in the community. And one of the things Larry was big on is not pinning and resetting, but you know, letting your finger forward in in recovery. And Dean and I sat there and started laughing with each other because the light went on for all of us that we have been pinning and resetting a trigger because we've been teaching kindergartens with our shooters that we're teaching who the reality is take your average Joe street cop. They're not shooters. Right. They're in, they're at kindergarten level. And what Dean and I took from it as instructors, we have got to quit shooting like our students to demo for them constantly and start pushing ourselves harder to get faster, better, more accuracy driven, that type of thing. So that's where we really got into the trying to um, reset in recovery. This now gets to what we were talking about with all the guys on the internet who said, yeah, I'm resetting and recoil. I mean, when that slide's moving forward, my fingers with the slide. Want to bet? No, it isn't. <laughs> that, and I like the description uh, because, you know, after hanging out with dudes like yourself and Wayne, words matter a lot. And you know, for a long time, I said, well, you need to reset that gun while it's in recoil. And then I started realizing, well, now people are trying to fire a shot so that they can try to beat the slide forward to fire the next one. And so they're totally omitting what the task at hand is and trying to just beat some innate object from movement, whatever. Uh, and so I said, you know, you need to reset the gun while you're recovering it, meaning, the gun needs to be ready to fire 
before the error as the aiming process comes to conclusion. If when that happens, are back, not when the slide is back. There you go. Where <laughs> you I know. don't want to be, I don't want to add an extra step where my sights are in alignment. I'm in an acceptable area on the target. I've confirmed everything, and now I have to make a click because then that audible tactile click becomes your cue to fire the gun, and things can change in that window of time, uh, which is is something that uh, in the last few years I've gone, hey, look, if you're in the aiming process, you're recovering the gun, we need to recover the gun and reset the trigger in that window of time, which is not in recoil because that slide, uh, the slide on, on a gun under high speed resets in under a tenth of a second. You cannot make your finger move that Maybe Jerry Michalik, maybe, but you even watch him fire under high speed. Generally that slide is closed before his finger has completed that process. But I think it got so twisted out of context that it somehow became a, a a fundamental for follow through that we would hold the trigger to the rear and then re-aim the gun. And that's where I have a big heartache with it because I've seen dudes under stress that are seeing sights. And they're now forgetting that whole thing about, oh, I've got to reset the gun to make it go pow. So, so um, here's my take on that, yeah. that I'm, I'm kind of like in this internal battle. And it's one of those things that I think the best bet is having discussions like this so that at least hopefully instructors can get on board with what they're doing and thinking about the repercussions. So follow through is one of the most neglected parts of the process when we're teaching. And I think there's a couple reasons for it. Now, first for me, being around Wayne Dobbs, who is the follow through God, Wayne is like captain follow through. I mean, he, he places it as a huge importance in the process where it's truly an equal leg in everything and is exceptionally good, not of just doing it, but how he teaches it. And when you get around somebody who knows how to teach a subject at a high level, you, you tend to have some takeaways and the light bulbs start going on and stuff. Cause you've never heard it explained this way. So follow through causes a lot of problems that nobody wants to talk about. So it's really easy to just say, uh, and then do follow through without really kind of like the safety rules where people just rattle them off and they don't have any context to what they're talking about. Here's the problem we have follow through for a police officer, armed citizen, somebody using a firearm in a defensive shooting as an application of force has a wholly different function than pure follow through as a marksmanship tool, which has a purely different function than follow through from a competitive sport shooting aspect. So simply pure follow through is getting the gun after you fired the, the weapon is getting it ready to do it again. 
you know, getting those sites resettled, reading the sites, getting the trigger reset, getting getting the crap out of the trigger, standing on the. I mean, you're ready to go to start this process over, and a lot's going on in there. So that's sort of the middle. On the use of force side of the equations, this is where all the assessment is happening. Because what you now have to do during that process is you, you need to still see the threat, evaluate the threat, and then make a decision if we're going to stroke that trigger again to do yeah. another lethal force elimination, or do I need to get off the trigger? Do I need to sit on the sear? What am I now doing based on what your opponent's doing and its application under constitutional laws of the use of force in this country. Man, that's a lot of stuff to do and read and follow through on top of just the regular follow through right. stuff. So you, for a defensive shooter, you got a lot going on. And I don't know that we have a lot of instructors in the law enforcement world in particular. And, and you know, what? I'm just going to throw the entire self-defense community of defensive firearms instructors that are out there. Cause this isn't what we talk about in NRA basic pistol instructor class. This you'll, you'll not find an in-depth discussion on this. It is very difficult to teach this just like teaching, uh, you know, be smooth on the trigger, you know, don't slap the trigger. It, what does any of that mean? Right. Usually you got to get on a trigger with somebody to sh let them feel what's going on and diagnose this. And we're not doing a lot of that. So we're doing even less on teaching follow through. So then you get to having to teach follow through as a force application tool to teaching people what they need to be doing on top of the technical shooting portion of it. Now, what do we got to do on the force application in follow through? It, there's a lot going on that needs to get taught. And you know what pin and reset has allowed us to do? Not do any of that. It's much easier to teach some police recruit or your run of the mill. My pen is my most important piece of equipment. I carry this gun because they make me typical cop. We run into with this stuff. Do you want them sitting on a pin trigger while all of that stuff is going on? Or do you want them sitting on a properly slacked out trigger ready to go? And I'm going to kind of contend that from my perspective, I think we're going to be in less trouble if they're sitting on a pin trigger, if they haven't worked through all that follow through and the assessment and the decision-making and the problem-solving than having them sit on, trying to sit on a fully slacked-out trigger on the wall while all that's going on. So you got to kind of make a balance. Now, can some people handle that? Absolutely. And we should not be punishing those people for the sins of right. VNF because <laughs> well, we've lowered the bar so far that we're not going to teach you to properly do it. And, and I kind of take, I take it from this angle. Uh, you know, Wayne Dobbs uses the phrase recover the gun. Uh, and re part of the recovery process is to go through that. Do I need to make another shot? If I do, I need to prep the trigger to make another shot. My 
kind of, and I won't say it's a really a counterpoint or that it's directly opposed to what you're saying, but my take on that is if we are not, if we're not a hundred percent on that process, why is our finger on the trigger period? So you and I are in a hundred percent agreement because I'm the king of not being on a trigger. If I don't need to be on a trigger, yeah, I am way late getting on it to begin with. I'm usually a straight finger all the way to the target because I want to confirm sights and confirm the shot before I get on a trigger. And I, it's always a battle because it it slows me down shooting drills. Mm-hmm. And I always go back to my conversation with John Helms. When I said, you know, I don't really shoot gun, I don't really shoot right, and I handicap myself because I tend to be finger straight, straight until I develop a confirmed sight track. Right. And John goes, yeah, that's what I do too. That's how you don't shoot the wrong people. So I'm debating with all the guys who are really good technical shooters. Say I got to do this, and then the guy who has probably more experience at doing this for real than anybody in the United States under the ninth circuit and actually has been through those processes is telling me this is how you don't shoot the wrong people. Right. I kind of go, well, I'm going to weigh more heavily to the guy with all the experience of doing this for real with consequence behind it. So then we go to the other side of the equation, to the technical shooters and particularly the sports shooters. Mm-hmm. If you're doing follow through, like we're talking about doing follow through, uh, you are not going to be competitive in the competitive shooting sports period. You can't be because when they're breaking a shot and doing their site, reading their sites and stuff. You know where they're reading those? They're reading those sites right to the next target. Right. Or following up. The whole key is to not be, they generally at that level know if the shot was on or not before it broke. And if it's on, what are you hanging around for and follow through? You're wasting time. Right. Counter that with, on the defensive shooting side, you better be really freaking right before you press it again. Yeah. Because there's a whole lot of consequence with every press. And I tell guys over and over, and I cannot emphasize this enough, that we do not take seriously enough the fact that every time you press a trigger in the United States of America, you are committing either homicide or attempted homicide every press of the trigger and you better know which penal code subsections apply to, to apply the words justified in front of homicide or attempted homicide or, or shall be exempt from. Yeah. Right. There's a lot going on and follow through there. (laughs) Isn't that weird how you just associated penal code with a shooting fundamental? Right. There's a lot going on there versus, yeah, that looked good. I need to get to the next target, (laughs) you know? And again, this is why we have these battles between the sport shooting gurus and the force shooting gurus. And 
you know, I consider myself more of the, definitely on the force side, whether how guru I am, I don't know, but I, I guarantee I've done it more than most people have been sitting on that chair across trying to justify my actions multiple times versus guys who have never done that. Try, but, but you know what? I haven't ever won a, I, I have, I, I think I shot like one USPSA match um, that I did with my USP 45. And I went, I can't afford this. You know, your mm-hmm. seventh magazine on a stage of a 45 ACP and a DASA gun. I'm like, this isn't the sport for me. Um, but I certainly respect those guys because that's where all the technical skill is coming from. Well, I'll- but on the other thing, when you, you have to kind of apply this, that we're doing a ton and follow through. And if they're good, they're doing none and follow through. And I'll, I'll frame it like this. I I've said it on, uh, said it on primary and secondary with Matt Landfair the other night who, uh, you know, thanks Matt for having me on your podcast a few times to permeate some of my personal beliefs and opinions. But one of the things that I firmly believe is that if the sport shooters and the people that are preaching defensive shooting in the United States, if we are in total agreement, something's wrong. We need to constantly be at odds and it doesn't have to be unprofessional. Your Kung Fu sucks. Mine's better. It doesn't have to be that way. But if we don't constantly keep that in conflict, we end up in an echo chamber that downstream causes people to go to prison and causes people to have life-altering decisions that they can't undo. And, you know, I, I, I think a lot of this comes out of the, I think it's how respect is shown. That's a mm-hmm. street thing. If you've ever been uh, rule number one in cop world, you better learn how to show respect on the street or you're going to be in fights every minute at the time you're there and you're not going to be a very good cop. Right. The, I don't think anybody will ever say I don't have all the respect in the world for a master class for a GM. If you're making GM in USBSA, hats off because you worked your tail off for that. Yeah, you let alone the financial investment. The time investment you, you is incredible. Work your tail off. And we have the benefit of cheating in that we can pull a lot off of that to apply to technical shooting skills. On the other hand, I am huge about it. One of the things that came from Pat Rogers, and I have seen this proven over and over and over again, I can talk about it scientifically, philosophically, whatever practice makes permanent. Nerves that fire together, wire together. You keep doing stuff over and over, and that's what you're going to do. And from my end of the spectrum of being a force shooter, a force application person, I have to be very careful of what I'm making permanent, what I'm making a habit, and what neuropathways I'm building shortcuts into. Yeah, there ain't a thing that muscle memory doesn't exist. There is no such animal. What we do, it, there's no multitasking either. We task stack and we have neuropathway development that goes with that stuff. 
And if we are developing neuropathways that get to us, us to a wonderful subconscious state with some of these skills, I always tell people we have got to be brute. We have got to be incredibly careful what we're making permanent. And that and how does it apply to application of force versus what we're trying on another skill set of what we're trying to make permanent on an application of winning matches that are won and lost in tens of seconds. It's a bit of a different ball game. And so I tend to be very careful what I'm putting into my neuropathway development and what I'm making permanent because I always have to apply that to what my world revolves around. And that's the force world. Other people do different things. And again, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation today with Cecil Birch and we're kind of going back and forth. And one of the things I was talking about, I go, God, I wish the firearms world had learned as much as the martial arts world. Yeah. We all remember back in kind of my youth. Oh, you know, 100 Navy SEAL techniques or CIA death touches and all the stuff that was in the martial arts magazines and all the BS. You couldn't separate BS out from nothing because it was there was no uh, forum to do that with. You know, you just kind of took it that my sensei is better than your sensei. And I learned the dim mock. Yeah, I can <laughs> I can get a video series that will teach me dim mock in 12 lessons or whatever. You know, the UFC and mixed martial arts have pretty much dispelled all of that stuff. And, you know, we know now kind of what works and doesn't. It is so easy now for somebody going into it like a a BJJ mixed martial arts program. If you've got a great instructor, and, and the thing is, the instructors are easily vetted. It's not, oh, this guy is a, a 17th degree black belt in a martial art nobody ever heard of. Th- those guys don't make it really anymore like they used to. No. Now it's like, what's your competition record in mixed martial arts? Yeah. Because if you can't... It, and it's a different world, and it's pretty much plug and play now. That if you'll go do the fitness work and go do the practice, the techniques are pretty much all there. The to what level you want to do it, we have a little bit of a different issue with that. Is we're we don't really have a forum to sort this out. If we had a like two guys enter the ring with same rigs. <laughs> Same rig, same ammo, same gun. Oh, same gun, everything. And whoever walks out and the guy who's, uh, you know, 57 and zero or 57 and two, like both got shot and he, we, we were able Wasn't to fatal. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's going to be the guy running the, the school that everybody wants to go to. The, the guy who's Owen three is probably in a box somewhere. So, <laughs> you know. I had this very conversation with a guy that led our defensive tactics program the other day. Uh, We were talking about, you know, training cycles and all this junk in the firearms world that has permeated its way into police work. And I'm not saying that my, my opinion or my take is better than, than anyone else's. Uh, However, I start to see trends with people uh, like the Pat Rogers, the John Helms, uh, the Dave Dolans, uh, 
of how they program their brain and they all have the basics mastered in context, which is totally different than the basics mastered. Um, they, they all put emphasis on a few things and they kind of dispense with the rest of it as that's unimportant. That's something that was developed at camp Perry, whatever. These are the things that are important to me. And he made the point. He said, you know why the firearms industry, or I say industry, more like community, uh, to quote Tom Givens, because it ain't big enough yeah. to be an industry uh, yeah. for for legit defensive shooters or, or cop shooters, cop instructors. He said, your world is totally theoretical. And I went, really? And he said, yeah. And he said, because I can't shoot you any more than you can shoot me to see if something works. He goes, you and I have a question about a wrist lock, an arm bar takedown, a double leg, a sweep. We go put our gear on. We throw out the safe little cushy mats and we go figure it out. And the thing that I will lend to the defensive tactics, the uh, jujitsu communities, things like that, is that the ego involved in technique is almost non-existent. It's does it work or does it not? And how do we figure out it works? We go twist each other into a pretzel and whoever is the pretzel and whoever is the consumer, you go, I like that technique. Now that technique is mine. Yeah. Their world used to be kind of like our world still is. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Nobody, nobody ever saw the sensei fight anybody except they could do certain things to compliant people that they trained to be compliant while they were doing whatever technique it is. They were teaching it one quarter speed, you know, thanks McDojo life on Instagram. I appreciate that. Yeah, I completely agree. But so one of the things you may have attended a lecture, I do on training habits, of highly successful, maybe more than once, once. And that's what I did is I took all this stuff apart from the guys who are not theoretical, it's the people who are really good at doing this for real and they really don't exist anymore. Cause we don't let guys get into double digit shootings anymore in law yeah. enforcement, but, you know, the internet you, killed that. Yeah. Well, the media killed that. The, a lot of things killed that, you know, um, body cameras killed that. I mean, nobody wants to see guys who are really good at shooting people. Shooting. Like I said, that one video that, you know, we saw where the guy gets, he's drinking the coffee, puts his coffee down, jumps out of the ride, mm-hmm. car beats the dude down in one shot and sounds cool as a cucumber. Yeah. Okay. So guys like that are the guys that I spent a lot of time being mentored by and interviewing who did that in double digits. Yeah. There's and, a lot to learn, and you just ask them. They'll tell you what they do to train. They tell you what's important. They tell you what's not important. They tell you what's contextually important. Like, yes. yeah, that's important, but it's not important in what we do. It's important in building the fundamentals. Right. Which is kind of what we're talking about is how you're working a trigger. Is you need, as a fundamental, you need to master pressing a trigger or mastering that trigger of whatever it is. But then at some point that doesn't become important anymore. Once you know how to do it, right. That trying to do it faster than you can assess and think is not necessarily a positive. Right. But meanwhile, if you go to the other side of the sports shooters, they'll tell you 
if Jerry Mitchell looks never going to tell you, well, you need to be a lot slow. You, you, you need to be a lot more thoughtful and slower <laughs> where again, the, the guys who are doing this for real on force application, who've gotten to go to federal court before and, and have their guns taken by three letter agencies that don't like them. Uh, they'll tell you that going fast is not a good thing being right is a really good thing and you need to take some time to do that. All of a sudden these things are not the same. Both, both sides will tell you, and this is where we're kind of talking that they need to be fighting each other. Mm -hmm. Both sides will tell you that correctly pressing that trigger is really important, really important. Mastering that trigger is important, but then it's what you do once that mastery has taken hold is now how do you apply it? And the application is going to be totally different, totally different. And then what are we trying to make? What are we trying to make permanent? Yeah. You know, again, if I was a, if I was a USPSA shooter, a lot of the stuff I do now is not what I would be trying to make permanent. Yeah. You know, Justin dials class, we went there about a month ago, me and Wayne and, and some other guys, and one of the exercises he had us do was uh, it was one that I've done in the past, but I haven't revisited in quite some time. And it was essentially going at the speed that your gun cycles on a very generous target. And what I immediately got out of that was an instant dopamine, like adrenaline dump. And then a real like feeling of disappointment. And, and we, and he did this exercise in the context that he did it was, Hey, I'm trying to get your body in time with that gun so that you can recover it faster. You can, uh, and I am not necessarily faster from the aspect of shoot it faster, but just feel what that gun's doing in the hand and don't worry about the results downrange. We will, we will start to shape that. Um, and I kind of had this look on my face and he goes, uh, so tell me about that. And I go, well, you gave me permission to miss and I don't like to do that. And I said, but I also understand the value in, when I was practicing PPC, one of the things I liked to do is after an intensely focused practice session was go over and whack a piece of steel six times as fast as I could just to unwind like the, like the pressure pop off valve a little bit. Like I got to give myself a little bit of like reward for why I just spent three hours shooting 60 rounds. Right. right. So I kind of see both sides of it. Uh, but, but that was one of the, the things I took away from that was like, I'm not okay getting permission to miss. I'm never okay with that. Whereas the competition guys would come in with the, it's okay to miss under circumstances or, or not fire a perfect shot. That makes sense. Like, yeah. And a lot of that is the target. Exactly. And that was, cause again, you're never going to get. You might shoot a tuxedo or a half or a something, whatever, but it's pretty defined target of what you got. And it's not going to change on you. No. 
And usually what I tell people is I said, you know, one of the things when I used to practice retention shooting is I practice retention shooting on a bull. Well, why are you doing that? Well, because let me tell you a story. While I was sitting there facing a guy in a bar pulling a gun on me, when I started my trigger press, I had a full-facing target. When I finished my trigger press, he had turned completely sideways, and the round entered here and came out over here. Right behind the right behind the the man the man boobs. Yeah. Yeah. Is well, it was in it. It went in the front here. It came out in the back. Um, you know, basically the deer shot. Yeah, and when I tell people size of a grapefruit, large orange, small grapefruit, that's your acceptable target in our world. It, aortic arch of the brain, that's your target. It doesn't change. All of this is extra stuff to miss in. The difference in our world is all of this can turn and is dynamic. But our acceptable target never changes. It's just what it's housed in can move a lot. Yeah. What the other guys don't get is they get an acceptable target that isn't going to change on them in the middle of a shot or from one shot to another. I mean, I get you get some of the Texas stars and stuff like that, but those all have their own strategies and are fairly predictable as well. You're not going to get the... Okay, here's what's going to happen is it's going to be a full facing target that you get this much of a score and then you get another target. But that same target might go to one quarter of it to get in the middle of your shooting in the middle of your three shots you're going to shoot. Yeah, they're all three going to be a different target on the same target. It, it, It doesn't work that way. So you prepare different for it. And, and, you know, by the same thing, I've got a buddy of mine. It's a very good uh, uh, USPSA shooter and very an exceptional technical shooter, period. And one of the things he does with me is he's, he's, he'll, he'll, he'll never be a good instructor, just his personality in there, exceptionally good coach. I can't ask for better. I, anytime yeah. I get an opportunity to shoot with him, I do because he's such a good coach. And one of the drills he'll do is he'll get us on a target, like you said, he goes, yeah, beat that trigger as hard as you can, as fast as you can press it. We're looking split times only, and don't worry about what's happening on the target. As soon as we finish doing that, we take one step over and start shooting one-inch squares. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to feed both ends of this, this animal. And, you know, so it's uh, – it's kind of how you practice, but see, again, nobody wants to talk about how slow you can shoot. You know, that's never what you want to put on YouTube. You know, we're very drill addicted for social media versus because, you know, a lot of the guys who are the drill masters, they're also not they're, they They tend to not be real good street shooter or have no street shooting experience. And they're also not shooting at a high level of competition either. I can at least have the argument with a high level competition shooters. Because like you said, we need to be at odds with each other Mm -hmm. to make any progress. We have to be respectfully disagreeing with each other because the game is different. It is. And, you know, Riley and I were talking about, you know, he he started delving into the history of sports shooting. And he kind of tracks it back to Big Bear and all that stuff. And he's like... Well, all of these techniques were pressure tested out of uh, sport shooting. And I said, yeah, 
But the next layer is a lot of those dudes that were learning that were going out and shooting bad guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the reason that they developed the pressure test in competition was because a lot of the guys that, that started that whole big bear leather slap match were overseas shooting bad guys and going, yeah. well, how do we stay? How do we more effectively do that? And then when we put it into the context of American law enforcement, it went, oh, we need to be really, really precise at doing this. And uh, which is one of the reasons that uh, this summer I'm going out for Gunsight 250 uh, to see where that lineage came from. And I look at the trigger pinning thing. I, 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 to kind of bring it back around to that, I had this really interesting phenomenon happen with one Mr. David Cagle, who we'll, we will be <laughs> attending a basic training graduation, graduation for and yep. uh, get to cheer him on probably on the same parade field I walked across. So I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I'm elated about that. But, um, but taking him through a 25-yard PPC course where the accuracy is unforgiving, the time standards are unforgiving, I kept hearing his, you know, fancy schmancy staccato go click between each shot. That kid has grown up never pinning a trigger. Right. Right. I mean, we, yeah. that kid is the product of the modern training standards. And he's like, and I said, Hey, what's that? And he goes, yeah, man, I I'm slowing down so much. My I'm feeling my trigger reset. And I go, did I ever have to tell you that? No. I said, do we need to make any more emphasis on that? And he goes, no. And I said, why are you doing that? He goes, because I am evaluating that process from start to finish for every single shot I'm taking at 25 yards. And I went, okay, do do we need to have any more discussion about it? And he goes, well, I keep waiting for you to tell me to stop doing that. I'm like, I don't care if you're doing it. it. It's, it's irrelevant at this distance there and and under these time constraints there's no reason not to and there's no reason that if you're not doing that I should tell you to do that it it's contextually pointless but it's odd that in the uh process of teaching you to be have a high degree of accuracy at 25 yards you're doing that automatically even though you've been trained your whole life don't pin the trigger don't pin the trigger don't pin the trigger and he's like, well, it's like my clock, the trigger working rearward as I'm cleaning the sight picture up, I start that same process in reverse. And I went, there it is. It has nothing to do with it being a fundamental. It's just, just a phenomenon that occurs, right? And it was that was an eye-opening experience for him and for me because never once did I say, hold the trigger to the rear, release it only far enough forward that you feel and feel and hear the reset. And we had this like brotherly instructor moment of like, wow, that was a pretty monumental thing that just occurred because you've never done that before intentionally and you didn't intentionally do it this time. Right. So with, and you know, it was kind of like how with me and Caputo, yeah, where we had spent so much time teaching kindergarten 
okay, cut out the little red triangles, you know, we <laughs> pin that trigger click. You feel the click. Okay. Come back to it. Okay. Oh, only only use enough yeah. glue to get it to hold onto the bed. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had been <laughs> teaching kindergarten so long that we were shooting like kindergartner. Now we were faster at it than the kindergarten kids. Right. But it's like, we don't need to be doing this. We already know how to, I mean, it's almost the polar opposite because both of us, same age group, same mm-hmm. teeth cutting, same everything. We're basically at the forefront of what everybody was pen and resetting. Cause it was new, you know, it was new. It was great, you know, but it solved a lot of problems Did at the time. We just, a lot of times had so much success teaching it to kindergartners that we never got into, hey, at some point, these guys need to go to high school and quit cutting out triangles and start doing calculus, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> And I got to say, I'm, I'm going to throw some some props to Tom Givens. He covered it in his uh, instructor development course, his handgun instructor development course. He talked about pinning the trigger to the rear and all that and immediately when we started transitioning to firing a little shorter time constraint, he's like, all right, now that we understand that we have to reset the trigger, we need to accelerate that process so that we can evaluate our next shot. And I went pretty good description right there. And it was never mentioned again. The rest of the time I was there, that was the, okay, we're going to have them hold the trigger. As soon as the gun comes back, we're going to have them, release the trigger and then start that process of finding, finding the prep point or taking the slack out of the trigger or rolling through the trip. However you want to describe the actual press of the trigger. Uh, but I mean, it glossed, I won't say it glossed over it, but it addressed it. And then it immediately went to the first grade. It went from the kindergarten to the first grade to, okay, now we're writing in cursive. Um, yeah. and that progress, that progression didn't take long. And I can remember people making a science project over what speed do you release the trigger? And I'm like, yeah. And, and you know, the other problem is too, is, you know, again, I kind of laugh with everybody getting excited about the Bakersfield qual now that we've rediscovered this <laughs> thing, you know, widely. And I sit there and go, you know, all these guys are like, I'm cleaning that. Yeah. You're cleaning that with my Kydex custom formed holster with your, you know, your red dot equipped polymer whiz bang super gun. And I'm like, um, you, you know, that was built for guys shooting out of snapped up 1970s duty holsters, mostly with revolvers or 1911s that weren't tricked out. That yeah. were stock, basically essentially stock guns. Cause they were required to have that for work. You know, I sit there and I go, yeah, you know, pinning and resetting's a thing. Go manage a stock HK USB forty-five full-size trigger on a gun that size with a dead stock trigger in that gun. Um, yeah, my trigger, our trigger management time and effort is going to be a lot greater than what you need to do on your your staccato. Just right. trust me on this, you know, <laughs> right? And, yeah. So I'm like, you know, kind of get over yourselves a little bit, you know, go grabbing out of the box, you know, Smith and Wesson four inch model 19, a leather holster, snap it up, go shoot that course. Tell me how good you do. 
because that's what the guys who are doing. Now, fast forward to today, what are we doing with police qualification courses? Mm. We almost make them set up around <laughs> bang, click, bang. Click. I mean, we've set the course to pace where we where you can pin and reset till you know at at, at turtle speed because we've made the courses allow for it. And then again, you talk about like with Kegel with what's the game in PPC accuracy X's. X's X's is the game. Mm-hmm. X's is the game. And maybe some of these techniques become important when X is the game, not how do I clean a 10th is the game. Right. And I, I will, a different con- game, you know, <laughs> I will contend to this day that the seven and 15 yard line course of fire 12 rounds in 20 seconds with a revolver is awesome. Provided they had moved the X ring to the high center chest instead of as Wayne Dobbs calls it the goodles, like get it out of the guts, put it in the high center chest. All of a sudden that's a really good, uh, one, it's a really good for pacing Two, It's really good for assessment and three, Three, it reinforce it's at a time standard that reinforces about the speed you need to shoot. When we go to twenty-five, times get generous, possessions get generous, uh, and, and the and target say, just you know, sucks. So they, they kind of almost have to if you're shooting with consequence. Yes. We we shouldn't have guys smacking triggers on multiple shots at twenty-five yards. Not because the situation facing them might not might call for it. The problem is the rule four issues. Yes. You know, the problem is missing because they all hit something. The problem is what you're hitting. You know, you got some bad guy shooting at you with a rifle at 25 yards. Yeah, you may want to be sending them back just as fast. The problem is, is for us, the misses come with consequence. So at what pace can you shoot and control the rounds at 25 to that? Because what it might be is a level of discipline to shoot once. Right. And, and move or do something, you know, where it, it needs to, it, you're going to have to kind of one and done it. So again, when you're talking about say 12 rounds and 15 seconds, if you made that into a B eight, that was on high center of a, anything humanoid all of a sudden that becomes a really good course of fire and And very practical. And, you know, God, with a lot of these police departments, my God, if we could get guys to do that at say seven and 10 yards of be able to hold nine and in or something like that. Yeah. You know, and and force that. Well, I've seen this, paradigm shift in the last it's been about 12 13 years uh one of the things that the state i live in did was they cut some of the time standards they made a little less generous on time but and they reduced the scoring areas a little bit the problem is they didn't make consequence for shooting outside of one scoring area versus another and i went Okay, I th- I think the proprietor of this course of fire was on the right track. 
Uh, the problem was the instructor community, even through the 90s up until the mid-2000s, was still locked into revolver mantra, teaching people how to shoot revolvers with a semi-auto. And I went, I don't work. That, you know, I don't shoot a sub gun the way I shoot a shotgun. I don't shoot a shotgun the same way I shoot a carbine. They're different animals. They are. And I mean, we've also got into the point where, you know, I mean, we can delve into it's a whole nother podcast. But, you know, if I, 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 I get upset when I hear my grip, well, that gun doesn't fit my grip. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? You might have to change that for whatever tool you're using. You, yeah. know, you might have to hold a different tool differently. Rather than dremeling parts off the gun or discounting a whole firearm system that's good because it doesn't work with the way somebody taught you to do something on one gun, be a little adaptable, you know, is that you got to maybe put your hands in a couple different places. Yeah. And I, I rediscovered that picking up a 2011 that I cannot grip the gun the way that I grip a Beretta 92 because of the thumb safety. And I had Mm -hmm. totally forgotten about that. However, the only gun that I don't have to change anything is Beretta 92. Whoever, Mr. I don't know, Guido Beretta or whatever his name was, that dude must have had hands that were exactly like mine because he. And and you know, the funny thing with that, for example, is I hated Berettas (laughs) because it didn't fit me on any level until, you know, Langdon started doing the thinner grips couple of things now almost every all but one of my personal bests have all been shot with a Langdon 92 mm-hmm. and I still don't particularly like them but the timer of the target says I shoot it better than anything else right. you know well and the emotions you can throw the emotions out of how I feel about it I, doesn't matter meanwhile you know it's funny um the wake up call for me came with a really good firearms instructor named Larry Nichols, who was sort of a legend out in Burbank. And, you know, I showed up to his class and I'm shooting and he was a big Glock guy. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm like, he gives me a Glock to shoot. I'm shooting my USP doing whatever. And he goes, uh, I'm trying to shoot this Glock and I'm all over the place. And he goes, son, because yeah, that was a good thing because you know, yeah, Larry was older than everybody so everybody was son right son that ain't a 1911 quit holding it like one right and, you know all of a sudden the big light bulb comes on because I learned to shoot autos on a series 70 government model and you know I was kind of laughing with the picture you posted the other day with the Eastridge grip yeah so the Eastridge grip when you look at it from behind that's my sig grip that's actually how I teach the SIG because that flying thumb is the decocking thumb. Yep. Because we used to teach our guys to decock every time the gun came on target, whether you fired or not. Guess what we built in subconsciously? They, it, you just decock the gun. And it was one of those kind of like leftover funny revolver grips that worked really. You know, remember when I said we were teaching to shoot autos like revolvers? Yeah. That was the Eastridge grip was the revolver grip that worked really good on a semi-auto. You know, what's, what's funny about that is nobody ever taught me that. And I called it, yeah, Hey, that's my dad's grip. Um, shooting J frames. I watched him shoot a J frame one time and he had this like hybrid flying thumb going on with the support hand. And I tried it 
because everybody thought thumb over thumbnail for for a, a revolver. Which is how I generally shoot them, yeah. And, and I do too on a full-size gun. On a snubby, my trigger finger and my thumb get in a little argument over there, right? So on my support hand thumb. So what I did right. was I'd flag the support hand thumb and lock it down on top. And all of a sudden I've got this free trigger motion. And my dad and I were shooting wheel guns one day and he's like, yeah, that's how I, that's how I shoot an auto. And I got a video of him shooting in a Vickers class where he pulls a draw and two rounds to the 10 ring of a B eight in, in like 1.8 shooting with that grip. And I went, somebody needs to tell him he's wrong. Somebody in the yeah. internet needs to tell him and, that's and, wrong. And, well, and again, you know, we've talked to, you know, cause we spent 30, we spent 40 hours in the car together the other day at a plane flight. Um, we, we touched on this when I won, you know, the largest County in the United States, when I won the top gun shoot, which was set up by the host agency to win, like they did every year on a pre-shot course on all their guys cleaned everything. You know, I did it with a 226 with the Eastridge grip. You know, which again, you know, I beat every guy out there by a lot on every stage uh, who were high level. And these guys, you know, the the sheriff's range guys were high level competitive shooters. Yeah. You know how a lot of those big agency range guys, they tend to be really good competitive guys because they sit on a range all day and practice. You know, if they're smart, they have the booze qualify the booze and they're out there, you know, practicing for the next match. And you know, again, it's adapt the thing to the tool. That grip just happens to work really good on a SIG. And yep, it'll actually work on a Beretta too. It's just a decocker sorter for me in the wrong place. Yeah, and it whacks right. my thumb. If right. I do it, it whacks so, my thumb. But But again, like you're talking about, is that we've learned to adapt ourselves to different tools. You know, it's like, I can't make the screwdriver work, quit holding it like a hammer and, uh, you can make it, it does a different thing. Well, one you push and turn and the other one, you, you I mean, dude, you hold them different. Well, there's, uh, and we, we covered a lot of ground. I think somewhere in the middle of this pin and reset and reset in, I, I like to call it reset recovery. in recovery somewhere in the middle there is a, there's a really good compromise and that's what David Cagle showed me because I, the day I was working with him, I was in one of those instructor moods where I was like, I've pretty much seen and done it all at this point. There was nothing more to learn other than if I go and pay for a class. And I had this moment where I went, I didn't have to teach that kid that I didn't even have to say anything to him. It just happened because he's well-versed enough to understand that it wasn't about pin and reset or reset and recovery. It was about the process he was doing at that time. And I went, yeah. And you know, a lot of guys who are not pin and reset guys, you put them out at 25 or 50 yards, they become pin and reset guys without thinking about it, without thinking about it. Cause it, it helps on the accuracy side. So, you know, I mean, it's there again, these are not wrong. It's we've been probably just teaching it, not, in a good contextual way, which tends to be a huge problem in our community. You mean why we're doing this podcast is put some context to some of this stuff. So uh, let's see. Final thought. I look at this like uh, isosceles versus Weaver. 
you better know both. Reset, recovery, pin and reset. <laughs> you got to know both. Yep. There's sort of a place for both and where to put those things. Um, I think, I think, for example, pin and reset is a really good way to learn in chunks the process of the trigger and follow through and what's going on with it. We just don't need to stay in kindergarten forever if you want to be good at this. And sometimes when you get back at you know, 25 yards on a bowl or 50 yards, you might need to go back to kindergarten for a minute <laughs> on running that trigger. <laughs> Thanks, DB. <laughs> See you Monday, and we're going to go back to kindergarten for a bit. <laughs> anyway, pin the trigger, don't pin the trigger. We're all right. We're all wrong. Reminder today, check out our sponsors, Manus, the X10 Elite. I just got my hands on one. Check them out at www. I don't even know why you say the WWs anymore. Uh, manusx.com and also barrel block at blocksafety.com as always the links are in the show notes also EDC belt company come on I, I, I would be remiss to not mention EDC belt company but a special thank you to barrel block and manusx for uh, their support if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast on Apple, I you know iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Blueberry, Podbean, wherever you like to listen to podcast, give us a like, give us five stars. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.